just want to ask you a question quickly. Um, if I was to say to you, um, think about your home for a moment, and what are the first, what's the first word that comes to mind, descriptive word? So, you know, what, what is the first word? And then there, I know there could be many, but and you can just pick one. Someone, some, a few people would be brave enough to just say the first word that comes to your mind genuinely. Don't just say the thing that, you know, genuinely, except for Davina. She's not allowed, because uh, she lives with me. Um, but, um, yeah, so... Okay, go. Ikea. 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 Very good. Very good. Busy. Busy. Floor, floor, warm, car, calm. Wow, can we come and visit you? Sorry. Safe. Cozy. Food. Loud. Loud. Great. Rest. Great. Okay, that's really helpful. Um, Mark chapter 11. Is where we it does link up at some point. So we're going to read from Mark chapter 11, the Gospel of Mark, just a short story, just to help you understand at what point this happens. Um, <clears throat> it's right towards the end of Jesus's kind of um, public life. Um, this would be uh, literally um, a short, a very, very short time, uh, a matter of um, uh, a number of days before the crucifixion. Um, and Jesus enters Jerusalem. It's the last time. He enters Jerusalem um, in that sense. He, you know, from this point on, he stays in Jerusalem until he is arrested and crucified. Uh, so Mark 11, verse 15, it says this. They came to Jerusalem, that's Jesus and his disciples, and he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he wouldn't allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you've made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. So just take yourself there for a moment. Take yourself to Jerusalem and and you've, 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 you've got the temple, a very busy place, but it's become a place of commerce. It's no longer a place of reverent prayer, no longer a place of worship. It's a place of commerce. It's just buying and selling, and you've got people, and it kind of looks spiritual because a lot of them are probably would be selling animals for sacrifice. But really, it's about making money. Really, it's about doing well for yourself. And Jesus goes in and just turns the place upside down and drives the people out. It's very forceful, absolutely the most physically forceful thing Jesus ever did. And, uh, and, uh, and he then chooses this Old Testament scripture to describe how God wants his temple. Um, is, is My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Some of you said calm, calm food, floor, other things. God says prayer. Um, God, when God says, what's my house going to be about? What's my church going to be about? Prayer. Prayer for all people. That was a big deal in those days because the Jews thought it was their thing. They thought that they had the monopoly on God. And God said, no, I want my, my people to be, a, and my, my household 
to be a place of prayer for all nations, for regardless of ethnic uh, back roots, regardless of where you were brought up. I want all people to be able to come to my house and pray. Now, in those days, it was a temple in Jerusalem. Uh, now, the church is God's people. It's it's not a building somewhere. It's people. It's the people of God. And so, God's plan, God's heart for His church, for His people, is that this this us together will be a house of prayer. That's a big deal. Because you all chose the word that for you was the first thing that came to mind. Now, if I'd taken time with you as individuals, you would have gone down a list. There would have been other things. But the first thing you said was that. The first thing God says is prayer. Because, well, we'll go on and we'll look at why. I won't won't ruin it all now. As Foxy said earlier, the most frequent illustration in the New Testament about the church is that it's God's home, it's God's family, it's God's household. And so the atmosphere of the church should not be business, should not be formal, it's home. Home is where you go to kick back. Home is where you go to relax. Home is where you go when you know you haven't got to be anything or do anything other than just who you are and you know, what needs to be done. But it's, the whole thing is done, it's kind of your guard is down, the walls are down, you know, you can walk around in your pants, it's that, that's home, you know, you can just relax. Uh, that's the wonder of being at home, isn't it? Uh, and... Uh, and we don't understand that home is not a place of stiff formality. It's not, a place of, it's not a place of just polite conversation. Home is home. I mean, if you were to walk past our home with a special sort of hearing device so that you could hear the conversations going on before you came in, here's some of the regular things you would hear. <laughs> There'd be lots of other things you'd hear, Kate, but the regular stuff is this. The regular stuff is... Wash your hands, it's time for dinner. You hear that one every day. Davina will belt out from the kitchen. Wash your hands, soap and water. <laughs> and we all run upstairs together in fear of our lives and wash our hands. Uh, you're here, can we watch a movie? You hear that quite a lot. You're here from someone to someone at some point during most days, I love you. You're here normally on Saturdays or just before school, you're so annoying. You're so annoying. You're here. Good day. Yeah, it's all right. You're here. Has anyone seen my phone? <laughs> These, they're just, it's, just, it's just the stuff of life. It's just, it's just how it is. It's just home. It's the kind of things that we talk about, you know, when you're not talking about it. It's just the stuff that goes on. It's not particularly impressive. There's some impressive things that are said from time to time. But, you know, uh, normally by Davina. And... Um, but normally, it's just kind of, we just, it's just the stuff of life. And what I'm trying to guard you from is this. When you hear me say that God's house is to be a house of prayer, you start thinking formality. You start thinking, oh, 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 have I prayed enough? And you don't start thinking relationship. You start thinking performance. Instead of relationship. You start thinking failure instead of connecting with God. You start thinking, what should I be doing? Rather than, how is it at home? How does it work at home? And I want to help you there. Because I I was thinking about these quotes. And then, this wasn't deliberate. I looked at all these quotes. I was thinking about what what goes on in the home. And then I looked at each one of them. And I thought, isn't this interesting? Wash your hands, it's time for dinner. Part of praying is cleansing talk. 
It's cle- there's a cleansing element to prayer, isn't there? Confess your sins, and he will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's something about that conversation with God where you bring out the darkest thing and the thing you're ashamed of, and there's a cleansing that comes. Not judgment, cleansing. And then there's, can we watch a movie? There's requests. We ask, don't we ask God for things? We, t- we dare, not, not to just sidestep the desires of our heart, but bring them to him. Or do we? We ought to. We bring our deepest desires, that thing we really want to do, more than anything else, which obviously, often in my house for the kids is watching Tintin, you know, or whatever. But obviously, before God, it's probably something different. But nevertheless, we actually feel the boldness to be able to say what it really is. And not just kind of say something you think you ought to. You know, I think I ought to kind of say that, so I'll say that. Actually bring your requests before God. And then there's I love you. Just adoration. Just to draw near to God and tell him that you love him. And to bask in his love. Just for the sake of it. Just because it does you good. Just because it's your life. And then there's you're so annoying. That we bring our frustrations to God. That we dare to bring our deepest pain to God. That we dare to, that we dare to cry out. That we dare to get as raw as we can and be utterly honest with God and know that he can handle it. And we don't go for some sterile, sanitised relationship where we never tell God what's really going on. Where our voices never get raised. Where it's sort of permanently on, you know, kind of a quarter volume. You know, it's just no life in the thing. Where we say every now and then, good day. <laughs> just chat, catch up. Is it what's going on? Just talk with God. Has anyone seen my phone? <laughs> Forgetfulness. We forget, don't we? We come to God to remember. Oh yeah. You've forgiven me. You've changed me. You've washed me. I'm not who I was. I'm in Christ now. You see, it's just the richness of what it is to be like with God. I'll be quoting a lot from this book today, Philip Yancey on prayer. He says some beautiful things. He says this, he says, uh, like all good things, prayer does require some discipline, yet I believe life with God should seem more like friendship than duty. Prayer includes moments of ecstasy and also dullness, mindless distraction and acute concentration, flashes of joy and bouts of irritation. In other words, prayer has features in common with all relationships that matter. And yet for many people, the biggest struggle is prayer. Lloyd-Jones says this, of all the activities in which the Christian engages and which are part of the Christian life, there is surely none which causes so much perplexity and raises so many problems as this activity which we call prayer. I'm not, I'm not naive enough to think that uh, all of us are excited about the week of prayer to come. I know that some of us probably haven't even engaged with it, emotionally, intellectually, with our diary, because it's like, it's not the, your idea of fun. It raises more questions and answers. You struggle with prayer. I'm not naive. I understand these things. And I want to just try and, uh, by God's grace, help you uh, see prayer, maybe in a new and a more wonderful light than you have today. So first I just want to ask, why do I believe in prayer? I want to, I want to just, for a few minutes, talk about why I believe in prayer. Why I believe that it's worth giving time to. Firstly, I think it's Jesus' example. This God-man, you know, this man who's perfectly divine, lived a life of prayer. I mean, if you read the Gospels, you can't get away from it. It wasn't just the formality almost to just show us that we ought to do it. I mean, before he chose the 12 apostles, he prayed all night. 
I mean, if you're praying as a formality, you don't pray all night. You do something for two or three minutes, then it's done. And everyone can see you've done it. You do it loud, so people can see you've done it, then it's done. He prayed all night. Why? Because he needed to hear from God. His disciples said to him, teach us how to pray. They'd seen his prayer life, and something in them said, I want to pray like that. The writer to Hebrews says that um, his prayer was, involved loud crying and tears. There was a, he was fully engaged. It's an incredible example. He, for Jesus, it seemed like he gained more energy from withdrawing to pray. Whereas perhaps for some of us, the idea of withdrawing to pray drains us. For Jesus, it wasn't like that. So I see something in his life, I see something in his example that actually provokes me to think, you've, you've seen something. This is what it should be like. And then Jesus' is teaching, which frankly is sublime on prayer. Jesus' is teaching is just like, theologians have tried to dull it down for centuries because it's extreme. Ask and it shall be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open because those who ask receive. Those who seek find. To those who knock, the door will be open. Jesus said, when you come to pray, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. I mean, again and again, he's bringing this dynamic faith into his teaching on prayer. If any of you tells a mountain to move and be thrown into the sea and does not doubt on his heart, it will be done for him. And you're like, Jesus, can't you, can't you domesticate these Phrases a bit and make them a bit safer. No, no, no. There's a universality about the way he talks of prayer and faith. It just makes the whole thing so exhaustive. Can't get away from it. Shocking. It's way more shocking than anyone else's teaching in the Bible on prayer. The Gospels. I mean, it just it makes you realise that through faith and prayer, everything that's in God's heart and God's will is within reach. Amazing. So I see his example. I see his teaching. And then do you know what? Because his spirit lives in me, it's just a witness of the spirit. I know. I just know. You could, you could put me in a room with 10 of the top atheists in the world and they could bamboozle me for 12 hours and tie me in knots and blast me with their arguments and I would be rocked and I would be shaken. And then when they all filed out of the room and shut the door and left me in there, my first response would be to say, Because I would be confused, I would be disorientated, I would be rocked and shaken, but what would I do is I would pray. Why? Because something has happened in me from coming to know Christ, we're deeper than anything else I know because I know because I know. What can I do? And even when praying is at its hardest, I know because I know because I know. I just know. It's his, it, praying is close to the heart of God, it's central to relating with God. So there's just the witness of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, I've just got too many stories. I've got too many stories of answer prayer. It's like, what can I do with this? It's history. It's fact. God has answered my prayers. I don't, you know, what can I... And, and I've... You know, coincidence, when you're in it, you know it's not. I mean, it's just, you know, even little stories. It's just a tiny little story because it, just, it makes, just makes me chuckle. Oh there's, a, oh, there's another one. We didn't have a car to go on our honeymoon with before we got married. And we felt God say, don't ask anyone. Don't tell anyone. Just pray. Which is fine until it gets to like a week before. <laughs> it's not much fun anymore. But we just felt God say, no, just pray. Just ask. And I remember one morning, just a friend saying to me, Steph, how are you getting on honeymoon? I don't know if it was a week before, two days before, I can't remember. I said, I don't know. Do you want to buy my car? Like, yes, please. But just knowing that moment. God had just shown us. We can trust him. 
I remember a time I was going up to a place called St. Neots, which is actually some friends here will know because they're from there. Um, some, some guests with us, some dear friends. But I was going up there. I had no money to get up there. It was, it was Friday. And I had to get, get up there on Saturday. <laughs> and I had no money. No, and I, I said, God, I don't know what to do. And I just felt God say, just trust me. And I was like, fine, I'll go to the station with no money if need be. That's fine. I resolved it before God, no problem. I walked out of that room. And a friend of mine, I bumped into a friend of mine. He said, hey, I said, how's it going, Steph? I said, fine, how are you? He said, fine. He said, we up to it the weekend. I said, I'm going to St. Neots. He said, where? I said, St. Neots, thinking he didn't know where that was, you know. He says, are you serious? I said, yeah. I said, why? He said, I am moving my daughter from St. Neots down to London, but I'm hiring a van in London first to drive up there. Do you want a lift? Yes, please. <laughs> I've got story after story after story. What do you do with that? Well, at this point, I'm not saying I don't have stories of unanswered prayers. Of course I do. Of course I do. But the answered prayers are just so clearly answered prayers that I can't get away from it. I cannot get away from it. I remember when we put on the, the Word and Spirit conference last year. Oh, man. You know, hired out a venue. We needed 200 people, you know, just for it to be like, to be all that we wanted to be in our hearts and to make it not a terrible financial disaster. It was in February. Come January, we had six people booked in. <laughs> six, for goodness sake. I remember there was one point, I think, in December, where there was just one other person. And then a friend of mine saying, I've booked in. I said, great, I'll see you there. You know, <laughs> me and you. And it got to a point where it was so desperate. Just so desperate. I remember just going over Hampstead Heath. It's beautiful. It's been snowing. The whole place was lit up just with snow. It was, it was 11 p.m., you know, lit up with snow. And it was like, God, I, I'm coming over to pray now. And I, I, I need to get the answer from you in this prayer time because I'm terrified. And I remember just, just you know, it's one of those I'm not going to let you go moments. And I got it. And I knew I got it. Like before, I got it. I got it then. And just to I just started filming just with the confidence, supernatural. Fact, I knew we've done it, we're there. And from that point on, just, just thanking God, thanking God as the numbers came in and in and we got 199, and then on the day, a few others turned up and booked him. So. And it, it, just learning to hurt, scary, hurts, and all of that, but it's exciting and it's thrilling. So that's why I believe in prayer. Um, and this week, we've got an amazing opportunity as we engage in prayer together. An amazing opportunity to really grow and really touch on some stuff. And the th- in terms of what the opportunities are for, I think number one, just to engage with God. Just to engage with God. I want to just be honest with you, but I'm in, I'm in a season of immense spiritual dryness. And it's been a long, long season. Praying is hard. And I'm not going to stand here and act the hero and tell you that I'm praying as much as I do when I'm not in seasons like this. I'm not. But I refuse to disengage. Refuse to disengage. And it's the most painful thing when it's like this, because when you love Jesus, you love him more than anyone. And when he feels a million miles away, it just hurts. And you think, what's the do I really do I want to do this again? Do I want to draw near again and feel like nothing? Of course not. It's hard. But there's something about engaging with God and remaining engaged that's massively important for our maturity, for the purposes of God. It's just huge. I've just, I found this a really cute little story in the, from Philip Yancey. Listen to this. This is funny. 
I recall a scene very early in my marriage. We were visiting friends out west who had arranged for us to stay at a four-bedroom guest house. They had no other occupants at the time. Over dinner, some comment hit one of us the wrong way, and before long, a marital spat had escalated. We sat up late trying to talk it through, but instead of bringing us together, the conversation only moved us further apart. Aware that I had a business meeting the next day, I stormed off from our bedroom to another one in search of peace and sleep. A few minutes went by, the door opened, and Janet appeared with a new set of arguments supporting her side. I fled to another bedroom. (laughs) The same thing happened. She wouldn't let me alone. The scene became almost comical. A sulking, introverted husband running away from an insistent, extroverted wife. By the next day, and not before, we could both laugh. I learned an important lesson, that not communicating is worse than fighting. In a wrestling match, at least both parties stay engaged. And there's something about staying engaged in the thick of it even when it's tough, even when it hurts. He said, I'm not just going to go quiet on God. I'm not going to just go tough. I'm not going to just sulk. I'm not going to, you know, I'll tell him. This is really hard at the moment. I'll tell him such things. I will remain engaged because anything is better than going silent. In any relationship, isn't it horrible when someone goes silent? Husband, wife, friends, you think... It makes you want to panic. You know, what do, let's, we can work this thing out to just go quiet. And sometimes we do that with the Lord because we're disappointed or scared or sulking or whatever, proud, who knows. We mustn't do that. We've got a great opportunity to engage with God together over this week. Then we've got a great opportunity to be honest with God. This is really important. I'm going to just be quoting Yancey for the rest of my sermon because he says things much better than I could. He says this, unless I level with God about bitterness over an, un- over an unanswered prayer, grief over loss, guilt over an unforgiving spirit, or a baffling sense of God's absence, then that relationship will go nowhere. I may continue going to church, singing hymns and praise choruses, even addressing God politely in formal prayers, but I will never break through the intimacy barrier. We must lay before him what is in us, not what ought to be in us, wrote C.S. Lewis. To put it another way, we must trust God with what he already knows. I realise that my, my image of God, more than anything else, determines my degree of honesty in prayer. Do I trust God with my naked self? Foolishly, I hide myself in fear that God will be displeased, though in fact the hiding may be what displeases God most. From my side, the wall seems like self-protection. From God's side, it looks like a lack of trust. In either case, that wall will keep us apart until I acknowledge my need and God's surpassing desire to meet it. When I finally approach God in fear and trembling, I find not a tyrant, but a lover. That we just come, we come honestly with all that's in there. It's like anything, isn't it? You know, I'm up for, I'm up for a chit-chat as much as anyone. But if my life were just chit-chats, it's just draining. Isn't it? I know I'm intense, so I need those conversations. I know I'm a bit intense, right? I know that. But if, even those of you that, you know, you're not intense like me. If your life was just superficial conversation... That would be a draining thing, wouldn't it? You must have certain relationships where you can just connect and talk on a level. That's important. How much more does God want that? He actually wants real relationship with us. Not just to us to come and go through rituals, but real relationship with us. So we get opportunity to engage, to be honest, and to fight. To fight in prayer. Listen to this wonderful, um, I love this, this is a beautiful prayer. 
He says, a century before Nelson Mandela, the ex-slave, whose name was Sojourner Truth, a leader in both abolitionism and the women's suffrage movement, had no qualms about praying exactly what was on her mind. When her son fell ill, she prayed, Oh God, you know how much I'm distressed, for I've told you again and again. Now God, help me get my son. If you were in trouble as I am, and I could help you as you can me, you think I wouldn't do it? Yes, God, you know I would do it. When she fell on hard times financially, she prayed, Oh God, you know I have no money, but you can make the people do for me, and you must make the people do for me. I will never give you peace till you do, God. (laughs) Fighting talk. He can handle it. He can handle it. It's not irreverent. Those of us who are English, we're quite a polite culture. It can hinder us in our prayers at times. Sometimes we're not as truthful as we might be. Some who come from other cultures, I remember an American coming to our, our city and his first, one of his first comments was, candor doesn't exactly grow on trees over here, does it? Candor means honesty. That we tend to say, think, you know, we can be polite with, and, and we can approach God like that. And he wants truthfulness in the innermost part, the Bible says. We need to fight. Fight for our loved ones in prayer. Fight for the next generation. Fight for signs and wonders. Fight for breakthrough. Fight for our city. That's what we're going to do this week. We're going to engage with God and fight. And uh, we're, going to just, we're just going to keep going. Uh, because we, we know, we know. We, God's made us promises through the scripture perfectly. We know that it is God's heart to save, to rescue, to restore, to redeem, to heal, to bring life. We know it, don't we? Amen. So we're going to fight through every barrier, internally and externally, to get into the promises and the inheritance of God. And what can we expect as we engage over this week? Well, I think first of all, we can expect restored priorities. Listen to this. Prayer and only prayer restores my vision to one that more resembles God's. I awake from blindness to see that wealth lurks as a terrible danger, not a goal worth striving for. That value depends not on race or status, but on the image of God a person bears. That no amount of effort to improve physical beauty has much relevance from the well be- for the world beyond. Prayer wakes us up. It changes our priorities from where we just get our hearts hooked on things that can never satisfy and that are going to fade away and we engage with the eternal. Our priorities get shifted through it. You know, whatever you invest in, your, your heart then becomes invested in it. So if you invest time in eternal things, your heart will get invested in eternal things. If you just invest yourself in temporary things, your heart will become like that. So as we engage with God in prayer, we, we can see a sense of restored priorities. And then a restored rhythm. This is very important for us. Listen to this. Increasingly, time pressures crowd out the leisurely pace that prayer seems to require. I will read that again. Time pressures crowd out the leisurely pace that prayer seems to require. Communication with other people keeps getting shorter and more cryptic. Text messages, email, instant messaging. We have less and less time for conversation, let alone contemplation. We have the constant sensation of not enough. Not enough time, not enough rest, not enough exercise, not enough leisure. Where does God fit into a life that already seems behind schedule? Do you feel behind schedule? There's a mentality thing. When we just take time to engage in prayer in a ruthless kind, I'm going to do it way, the rhythm internally begins to change. Uh, Restored perspective. Listen to this. Easiest sermon I've ever had to prepare. I'm just reading the guy's book the whole time. I love it. It's amazing. It's a revelation. 
As theologian Dan Hawke puts it, the basic problem is that everyone believes there is a God and I am it. We need a strong corrective. And for me, prayer offers that very corrective. Why value humility in our approach to God? Because it accurately reflects the truth. Most of what I am, my nationality and mother tongue, my race, my looks, my body shape, my intelligence, the century in which I was born, the fact that I'm still alive and relatively healthy, I have little or no control over. On a larger scale, I cannot affect the rotation of planet Earth or the orbit that maintains a proper distance from the sun so that we neither freeze nor roast or the gravitational forces that somehow keep our spinning galaxy in an exquisite balance. There is a God and I am not it. So it just straightens me out in terms of a new perspective, uh, in terms of a restored relationship. Listen to this one. Beg your pardon? Christians often treat prayer in this way. If I do my duty, then God owes me. Worship becomes a kind of transaction. I've given God something, so it's it's God's turn to reciprocate. Prayer as transaction rather than relationship can decline into a practice more duty than joy, an occasional and awkward exercise with little connection to life, not so different from the Buddhist monk spinning his prayer wheel or the Japanese businesswoman performing her temple ritual. It's not, about, it's not just about, just about getting stuff. There is requests, but relationship. That gets restored when we give time to prayer. This is brilliant. Restored simplicity. I became more convinced than ever that God finds ways to communicate to those who truly seek God, especially when we lower the volume of the surrounding static. I remembered reading the account of a spiritual seeker who interrupted a busy life to spend a few days in a monastery. I hope your stay is a blessed one said the monk who showed the visitor to his cell. If you need anything, let us know and we'll teach you how to live without it. (laughs) Wow. A restored simplicity. And then finally, a restored faith. When doubts creep in, And I wonder whether prayer is just a sanctified form of talking to myself. I remind myself that the Son of God, who had spoken worlds into being and sustains all that exists, felt a compelling need to pray. He prayed as if it made a difference, as if the time he devoted to prayer mattered every bit as much as the time he devoted to caring for people. One pastor asked me, if God knows best, what's the point? Should I just stop bothering him with my petty requests for myself and others and let God get on with the business of running the universe while I do my best to take care of things down here? To such questions, I have no better answer than the example of Jesus, who knew above any of us the wisdom of the Father and yet who felt a strong need to flood the heavens with requests. Although Jesus offered no metaphysical proofs of the effectiveness of prayer, the very fact that he did it establishes its worth. Ask and you will receive, he said frankly, a rebuke to anyone who considers petition a primitive form of prayer. When his disciples failed to heal an afflicted boy, Jesus had a simple explanation, lack of prayer. And then finally, I do believe we will get our requests answered. I really do. I really do. This is great. Several times, friends have sent their unaccompanied children to visit us in Colorado. Having no experience as a parent, I'm amazed at the one-way relationship between a child and an adult. Kids automatically assume you'll wake them up, clean the room behind them, feed them, transport them to fun places, and pay for everything along the way. (laughs) They may offer an occasional thank you, but they give little feedback and rarely initiate conversation. Adults, they assume, exist to satisfy their every need. They are, in a word, immature. 
And I sometimes remind myself of that word when I besiege God with a series of demands, wanting God to solve my problems and satisfy my desires. Still, I cannot discount such childlike requests because they impress Jesus, especially when they came from an unlikely source, a foreign woman, a Roman centurion, the friends of a paralyzed man breaking through a roof. Most of the spectacular answers to prayer I know about personally have come to young Christians who don't know any better than to pray for exactly what they want. Here's some real truth in that. We're going to pray this week. We're going to have a wonderful time praying. There'll be some prayer meetings you go to where you're thinking, this is hard work. Others where you're in, you know, you feel like you're in glory. Okay? Uh, But I want to encourage you to engage. To invest. To dare to lay aside some of your, some things that might seem very pressing for you personally. And say, I'm going to go and pray. We're going to be meeting every morning, 7 till 8 at the upper room, Monday to Friday, 7 to 8 a.m., we'll be there praying. Monday to Thursday, we'll be there 6 till 7 p.m. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. There'll be different themes we'll be covering. It doesn't matter, you know, just come when you can and engage with God and invest, pour yourself into eternal things in prayer. Gospel communities will be meeting throughout the week to pray on a, on a given evening. On Thursday, Foxy and Rachel are going to be uh, meeting out on, on the streets to do some praying for people, praying with people, praying for healing, prayer evangelism. Friday night, we've got a half night of prayer at Chalk Farm, 8 till midnight. We're going to just, just get hold of God, wait in his presence. There'll be different places, stations to pray about things. But Friday, 8 p.m. till, till Sunday noon, kicks off 40 hours of prayer and fasting. Some of you may have never fasted before, and I'll call you to fast and pray. I don't understand it. The Bible never gives a definition of what's so powerful about fasting, but there is example after example after example of the power of prayer and fasting. So we're going to pray and fast. You haven't got to understand everything to, to, to understand that it works and it's something that we need to engage in. There's opportunities to sign up. We want to try and make sure some people from church are praying for every one of those 40 hours, giving themselves to prayer. You can sign up. Foxy, you just stand up. Foxy, with the lights no more table at, at the end, you can sign up. Put, give your, you can write it all down so you get your slot, you get your slot done. I want to ask some of you to stand with us in fasting. To, to seek God. To, to, to die to yourself. To learn about that. It's not about earning God's love. It's not about legalism and rules. It's about, it's about being willing to lay down Comfort, being willing to lay down other agendas and just say, God, I'm going to seek you for something that's so close to your heart that your church really would become a house of prayer for all nations. That the people that I know and love and work with really would come to find forgiveness and life in Jesus. That this nation that we can see just really falling apart at the seams can be restored through the gospel of Jesus Christ. To give yourself to that. To draw near to God. I want to ask and call and urge you to do that. That we would care together. We're going to have a prayer walk to finish off our 40 hours. 10 till 12. 10 a.m. till 12 next Sunday. Sorry, 10.30 is it? There it is, 10.30 to 12. Meet at Camden Square for a prayer walk. So I want to just call you guys to let's get God's heart in this thing. Um, and really, I think that the thing in my heart that I really want to appeal to us, I think the thing that will help motivate us 
throughout the week is, is really this idea that if we want to truly meet with the true God, then we need to bring who we truly are to that God. There's a call to authenticity. There's a call to bringing down the mask, the walls, the politeness. You see, because that drains me. The thought of, the thought of conversations that are pretentious drains me. The thought of being able to speak from the soul to one who understands my soul. It's wonderful. It's life. And I want to call us as a church to do that together. Um, we have these, if you want to just, you know, I know I've gone through it and, you know, you, this won't, the screen won't be in front of your face for the whole week. So Foxy will have these as well after the service if you just want to grab one and so you can remember when it's happening. Now, here's how I want to end the message today. The privilege of prayer is, is rooted in the fact that through Jesus we've been reconciled to God. Okay? If you want to know the joy of prayer, which is more than just saying prayers, ritualistic, but actually when you know God, when you know that the one you're praying to, you know who you're praying to and that he's there. To know that, firstly, you must be reconciled to him. You can't just drift into that kind of prayer. There's a reconciliation which has to happen, uh, and that hinges on forgiveness. That hinges on your sins being forgiven so that God can welcome you into his presence. And the Bible says that the way our sins are forgiven is through the sacrifice of Jesus. That what was going on there on the cross, that cross that we're all very familiar with, the image of, that what was happening there was that Jesus himself in that moment became sin for us so we could become the righteousness of God. There was a substitution, an exchange taking place where Jesus bore in his body our sins. So the most shameful and disgusting things that we have done or said or thought, in that moment at the cross, they were being punished in Christ. They were being judged in Christ. So any one of us can be completely forgiven, utterly forgiven before God, and live with a clean conscience, knowing that there's no more skeletons in the cupboard. It's all been dealt with. That wonderful feeling of the debt being cleared. And what I don't want to do is, is, is end this sermon without giving opportunity for those in this room who have never nailed that. It's, you've never, it's never been clearly nailed. You've never, you've never, in a sense, crossed the line of faith. You've never got to that point where you said, Do you know what, I, I want my sins to be forgiven through Jesus so that I can be reconciled to God. And in order for my sins to be, to be forgiven, I'm going to confess them all to God and I'm going to turn away from that lifestyle and, but re- and rely on him completely to fill me with the Holy Spirit and give me power to live a new life. Because of what Jesus has done for you, that way is wide open. And Jesus said that he would turn away no one who comes to him. And so as we're gathered here now, what I want to do, I want to give opportunity and appeal to you. If you know that this is the moment, and you'll know because internally something will be happening. You'll, you'll either feel like, oh, I see it for the first, I see it clearly, right? This is what, this is, for some of you, even as I'm talking about, it feels like the missing piece in the puzzle. There's some Christian stuff and some church stuff, but you've not, this is, the, you've missed, and you, ah, that's what it is. 
It's that repenting and turning away and coming to Christ and, and, and being baptized to demonstrate that you've died now and you've been raised up and it's a new start and it's a new life and it's all a gift. It's all coming from his grace. And maybe you just, ah, oh, you see it now more clearly. Or maybe this whole church Jesus stuff is new to you, but it, nevertheless, God's just worked in you through our time together and you're just like, yeah, that's me. I want this. I want this. And so I just want to give opportunity, as simple as that. God has made the way and God, in, God calls us all to turn away from our sin and to come to Jesus. And so if you want to do that, then just where you are, you just, I want you to just simply just raise your hand here just so I can... Thanks, Paul. It's brilliant. Seeing you, man. We will, I will pray with you after the service. If there's anyone else that just, you just think, ah, you know what, I get it. I see it now. I really want this. I really want this. Just give you that opportunity. Anyone else? It's brilliant, guys. Oh, it's wonderful that God's just brought that clarity to your hearts in a, in a new way. So good. So great. What we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to have some time, to the last bit of our service, where there'll be one or two more songs and we'll break bread and drink the wine at the back just to remember Jesus' body broken and his blood shed for us. During that time, probably what we'll do is maybe myself and... Paul and Charlie, maybe you know, maybe a friend of yours as well. Just we'll just talk together and we'll pray together, and so you can just come to Jesus and give your life to Him in a clear and a oh, in that wonderful, beautiful way. So let's just pray to finish. If the band wants to come up; that'd be great. Father, we love you. Thank you so much for this open door into your presence. Thank you, Jesus, for making a way where there really wasn't one. We could. We could have had a, a thousand years or even a million and we would never have found our way back to you. Thank you, you've, you've found your way to us. Thank you, you've rescued us. Thank you, you gave up your one and only son so that whoever puts their trust in him might not perish but have everlasting life. And we thank you, Lord, that everlasting life is knowing you. So we just bless you, God. We thank you, we love you here. I pray, God, that as we sing and celebrate and reflect on all of your kindness and all of your goodness, Jesus, the wonder that you who laid your life down is resurrected, alive forevermore, that you've beaten sin and death, that you rule and you reign, that you're going to come back again for us. Pray that our hearts would be filled with wonder and delight in new ways. And we pray, Holy Spirit, we want to tell you now, at the start of this week of prayer, we don't know how to pray. And so we are absolutely relying on you this week to help us, to empower us, and to lead us through. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.